Well, once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. Now, if you were a regular here, you know that we have been working our way through the book of Philippians at here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And um, a couple of weeks ago, the Lord laid uh, something on my heart, and I began to write some things down. And all of a sudden, it was a series, and God told me to deliver the series starting last week. So we put Philippians on hold for, oh, I don't know, three or four weeks to present a series I'm calling The Top Ten Lies of the Devil. Now, we know that Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, basically that the devil is a liar. He's always has been a liar. When he speaks lies, he's speaking his native language because he's the father of lies. Paul admonished us, not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, which includes not falling for his lies. And John, uh, Jesus said earlier in John 8 that the only way we can really guard against Satan's lies is to know God's truth. And that's why he said if you know the truth, really know it, it will set you free from Satan's lies. So, Last week, we started looking at some of Satan's favorite lies he constantly tries to get people to fall for, starting with number 10, kind of doing a countdown. Last week, we did the first three. Number 10, happiness will be yours when you own, achieve, or experience blank. Fill it in. In other words, happiness is dependent on what this world can give you. Line number nine. God can't exist because there is so much evil and suffering in the world. Line number eight. There is no absolute truth. Whatever a person believes is their truth. Brings us to lie number seven this morning. You're so bad, God can't love you. Now look, I don't have to tell you that we are living in a world full of wicked people. People who live such horrendously evil lives that others believe that they are beyond the love and forgiveness of God. You know, maybe they're career criminals or drug dealers. Maybe they're pimps or prostitutes. Maybe they're into child trafficking or even mass murderers. And right now as we speak, the Holy Spirit is drawing them to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. But the devil is telling them, that they are so bad that God wants nothing to do with them. Satan has fed this lie to a lot of people. This lie has kept many from coming to Jesus because Satan has fed them the lie that they are a lost cause, a hopeless sinner, that not even God can stand to look at them. Now look, you don't have to be one of the world's worst sinners to feel that your life is so bad that God can't love you and wants nothing to do with you. And if that's how you're feeling this morning, you need to only look at the bulk of Jesus' followers. They were tax collectors, prostitutes, assorted sinners and reprobates. And those were the good ones. Uh, no. But they were the social outcasts of their day. Those that had been tossed onto the garbage heap of humanity, so to speak, and written off as worthless, irredeemable sinners. 
these were the people that the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and so on, wanting nothing to do with. The religious leaders of Israel had written these people off as those that God only created to fuel the fires of hell, especially the Gentiles, were only created by God to fuel the fires of hell. The religious leaders of Israel hated these people and never had a kind word to say to any of them. They never gave these people any hope that God could love them and would forgive them because the leadership of Israel didn't believe that God did love them or would save them. Again, they were simply lost human garbage. And then Jesus came on the scene, who said things like, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. In other words, come to me if you're burdened down by the guilt of sin, or if you're laboring under all the weight of the law. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Of course, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him, whoever would believe in him, would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This was the first hope that overt sinners in Israel ever had because they had long since given up hope of ever getting to heaven. And now here's Jesus telling them, look, heaven is not for good people, it's for guilty people. It's for sinners, saved by grace. Now Jesus didn't just talk about loving and forgiving the most wretched sinners of his day. He reached out to them. We all know that one of Jesus' disciples was a, was a woman named Mary Magdalene. Turn to Luke chapter 8. And let's read verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it to the NLT. Luke 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, when people think of Mary Magdalene, most often they believe she was a prostitute. We're never told in the New Testament that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. What we are told was that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, that tells me something significant. First of all, I don't believe that the devil can possess a person, whether himself or with demons, unless that person opens themselves up to him. We're never told what Mary's background was, but I believe she was heavily involved in the occult. So heavily, in fact, that seven demons took up residence in her. Now, if you've ever talked to somebody who had been demon-possessed, well, you see an example in the scripture, actually. Um, it's a horrible thing, like the demoniac living in the tombs of Gadara. And all night long, he would be moaning and crying out and cutting himself with, himself with the rocks. He had no rest day or night. Then Jesus comes and, and casts the demons out of him. 
And the next thing we read is he was sitting because he was at rest and at peace. And you can imagine Mary's relief when Jesus cast out these seven demons. She might not have had a, a night's rest for years. She might not have had a moment's peace. Now all of a sudden she has great peace. Her life is never going to be the same, never was the same. She loved Jesus so much that she was outside the empty tomb that resurrection Sunday morning. And notice that the stone had been rolled away and the body of Jesus was gone. And she didn't know what to make of it. And finally, Jesus appears to her while she's crying. And she thought he was the gardener and said, Sir, wherever you've taken the body of my Lord, tell me and I will go and take it. And Jesus said one word to her, Mary. There was probably three or four Marys at least that followed Jesus. But he had a way of saying each of their names, I think. And you know what? His sheep hear his voice. They know him. And she said, Rabboni, which means master. And she fell at his feet. She was the first one Jesus appeared to. He gave her the first commission to go and to tell his disciples he had risen from the dead. Well, Another of Jesus' disciples was a man named Zacchaeus. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Now, we're told Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a short guy, probably about five foot. In those days, Rome often sold the job of tax collecting for money. And the way they worked it was they expected a certain amount of money, taxes from a given area that a tax collector was over. Anything you could collect above and beyond that you could keep. So guess what? It was a job rife with corruption. They were notorious extortioners, criminals, hated by everybody. And so it says in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region. And he had become very rich. Well, now you know why. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Jesus is coming walking down the street. Zacchaeus knows it's Jesus. He's always wanted to meet Jesus, or see him at least. But the crowd was everywhere. And if you were a short tax collector you really didn't want to try to work your way through the crowd because you get a knife in your back. They were always out to get you. Somebody wanted you dead. Probably a few. So he was too short to see over the crowd. Verse 4, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, Zacchaeus. He said, Quick, come down. I must be a guest at your home today. Uh, Zacchaeus, get down here. I'm going to have lunch at your house today. Verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased because he had gone to, the, gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Wow, how shocking. The Savior hanging out with sinners. Wow. You know? 
They were upset because he was hanging out. He told the Pharisees, look, a doctor doesn't tend to the well, he tends to the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Implying you Pharisees think you're righteous, so you don't think you need me. Where these other folks, these social outcasts and overt sinners that you've ostracized, they know they're sinners. They know they need a Savior. And so they come to me. Now, we don't, we're not privy to what went on during lunch. But obviously, Jesus witnessed Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus got saved. So how do I know that? Well, Jesus tells us he got saved. But his actions bear that out. Well, let's read it. He said, verse 8, Meanwhile, now this is during lunch, right after lunch, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. This is a safe guy. Now, if you doubt that, Jesus puts to rest all doubt. Verse 9, Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, not only did Jesus hang out with sinners, not only did he drop a bombshell that sinners could actually be saved and go to heaven. That was revolutionary in that culture because, again, the religious leaders had written off all sinners. But not only did Jesus drop that bombshell that bad people were going to wind up in heaven, some of them, he went on to drop a bigger bombshell good people would be kept out of heaven. Now, we're talking from a human standpoint, right? God knows the heart. God knows the heart. Those people that look bad to us, God sees their heart and sees that they are open to the gospel. Those people that look all religious and holy to us, God sees their heart as pure hypocrisy. But here, you doubt what I'm saying, Matthew 21, 31. Jesus is talking to some of the religious leaders, chief priests and elders and so on. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get, in, get into the kingdom of God before you. Why is that? Because they know they're sinners and they're open to receiving the Savior. Where again, self-righteous relig religious people don't think that they need anyone. They're good enough to make it to heaven on their own. You know, some years later, Paul the Apostle would say something that we all cherish. In Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounds much more. Or the Greek is superabounded. In other words, there is no sin so great, or sins, plural, that God's grace won't forgive if you come and you confess those sins to him and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will forgive you for whatever you have committed in the way of sins. Your sins are never an obstacle or a roadblock for God to save you. If you come with a broken spirit, a contrite heart, you pour out your heart to God, confessing your sins, receiving the Savior, Jesus will save you.
Now, some of you might be thinking, but Pastor, wait a minute. A little while ago, you said that God's, God wants to save mass murderers? Certainly you didn't mean that. You were kidding, right? No, I wasn't kidding. And I know this because I know a story of a mass murderer who God saved. His name is David Berkowitz, son of Sam. He wrote this track from prison. He begins by talking about, well, he gives his testimony. He was the only son of his mom and dad. From the time he was very young, he was a handful. He was always breaking stuff and throwing temper tantrums, and sometimes his dad would have to sit on him for a while to calm him down. When he went to school, he was always getting in fights. He, he just would, sometimes he would start screaming for no reason. Often the teacher would have to put him in a headlock and drag him. This was the 70s, a little easier to do back then. <laughs> drag him out of the classroom. I mean, he said, my life was so bad, my parents didn't know what to do. They took me to secular counselors, religious counselors, rabbis and things. Nothing changed. I was angry. I was depressed. I was often suicidal. I don't know what was wrong with me. And then at 14, his mom suddenly gets cancer and dies, leaving him alone with his father, who worked 10 hours a day, six days a week. And nothing was getting better for David. He was getting worse and worse at 18, finishes high school, joins the army, serves his four years, thinking that maybe this would be the discipline he needs to overcome these things. He came out just as angry as ever. He got into the occult heavily. He started practicing incantations and things just because he thought, well, I'll try the occult. He started reading the Satanic Bible. And then he said, I really slipped into a dark abyss. He said, I really think looking back in, at that time, demons had gotten a hold of me. Because I went out and I killed six people. Six people, six innocent people. Destroyed all their families' lives. I was eventually captured, tried, found guilty, and sentenced to 365 consecutive years in prison. And that's where he planned to die. He was lonely. He was depressed. His life was over, so he thought. And then one day, out of his own mouth, after 10 years of incarceration, and I'll read to you his own words. Ten years into my, my prison sentence, I was feeling despondent and without hope. Another inmate came up to me and was walking, as I was walking the prison yard one cold winter evening, he introduced himself and began to tell me that Jesus loved me and wanted to forgive me. Although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I did not think that God would ever forgive me or that he would want anything to do with me. Still this man persisted, and we became friends. His name was Rick, and we would walk the yard together. Little by little he would share with me about his life and what Jesus had done for him. He kept reminding me that no matter what a person did, Christ stood ready to forgive if that individual would be willing to turn from the bad things he was doing and would put his full faith and trust 
in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, dying for our sins. He gave me a Gideon pocket testament and asked me to read the Psalms. I did. Every night I would read from them. It was at this time the Lord was quietly melting my stone-cold heart. One evening I was reading Psalm 34 and I came upon the sixth verse, which says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. It was at that moment in 1987 that I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me all at once, the guilt of what I had done and the disgust at what I had become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and began to cry to Jesus Christ. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. When I got up, it felt as if a heavy but invisible chain had been around me for so long, uh, for so many years, was broken. A peace fluttered over me. I did not understand what was happening. In my heart, I just knew that somehow my life was going to be different. And different it has been. Uh, I have heard pastors say that they have visited him in prison. And they have talked to him at length. He's the real deal. He is an on-fire believer for Jesus Christ. He's even said, look, I don't ever plan on getting out of prison. I deserve to be here. I mean, I, I'm not, this is not about me. People say, well, you're only serving God to get brownie points and get out of prison. Says, I don't even want to get out of prison. God is so open doors for ministry here. This is where he's got me to serve him until Jesus comes or I die. No one is ever so bad that God doesn't love them and can't forgive them. So line number seven on Satan's top ten list of favorite lies. You're so bad God can't love you and wants nothing to do with you. Lie number six. Hell isn't real. I've heard people say over the years that, you know, hell isn't real. It's right here on earth. This is hell. And the main reason that people have such a hard time dealing with the reality of hell is because they can't reconcile it with the concept of a loving God. Even though Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 41, hell wasn't even made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But if a person wants to follow the devil and his rebellion against God, he will follow him all the way to his eternal place of torment, which is hell. What is hell? Well, hell is a place of perpetual burning, referred to as the lake of fire in the New Testament, and said to be somewhere in the outer darkness. There are those that believe that the lake of fire is a star. That's what a star is. It's a lake of fire. A star so far out in the remotest regions of the universe that no light penetrates. A star that burns in a chemical composition where it doesn't give any light. There are substances that can be on fire and give no light. The lake of fire will be one of those things. But it is a place of separation from God where all unbelievers who refused to repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior while they lived on the earth 
will be cast into this place for all eternity. And as Jesus told us, they will have nobody to blame but themselves. Turn to John 3. I want to read to you verses 18 to 20, again, out of the NLT. John 3, starting with verse 18. Jesus said, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, in Messiah, in me. But anyone who does not believe in Messiah has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came in, into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. There are a lot of folks who love to sin. They love to live unrighteous lives. I mean, they won't ever set foot in a church. That's why we have to go out into the world and try to witness to them where they are. But Jesus said, look, and remember, this comes right after John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him would not have to spend eternity in hell but have everlasting life. But Jesus wanted it, but there are some folks that don't want the light of God's truth. They don't want the gospel. They don't want a new life, a life that honors God. They want to keep living a life of darkness because they love their sin. So if they wind up going to hell, whose fault is that? Look, let me just come at it from this direction. All sin is a crime against God. All sin is a crime against God. And those crimes must be paid for, which means if a person won't receive payment through Jesus Christ for their sins, well... They're going to have to pay for their own crimes slash sins for all eternity in hell. Guys, the idea of a literal place called hell where there will be eternal torment is not a very popular idea with many people. They ask, how can a God of love allow people he created in his own image to suffer for all eternity in a place called hell? And so because people can't get their minds around it, it's too horrible to think about. Most people fall into one of three categories or camps when it comes to, uh, when it comes to hell. First of all, you have a group that ignores it altogether. They live in denial concerning the reality of hell. I saw a survey some time ago that uh, was taken among Americans. 76% of people surveyed said they believed in heaven. Only 6% said they believed in hell. So there's a lot of denial there. A lot of denial. The second group, well, they try to turn it around by embracing doctrines like annihilationism and universalism. Annihilationism basically teaches that when a person is thrown into the lake of fire, as soon as they hit the flames, they are burned up and go out of existence. There is no eternal suffering. Or universalism which basically believes that, you know, in the end, everyone's going to make it to heaven, universally. Because God's a big softy. He talks tough, threatens us with hell, like a parent threatens to spank their child. They don't knock it off, whatever they're doing. But they really never would because they're not that kind of person. That's God. I've heard people even say, you know, in the end, all people go to heaven, even the devil. Even the devil. 
Guys, both of those are rooted in wishful thinking rather than in biblical truth. But you have a third group. Maybe this is the biggest group of all. These folks make light of hell. They joke about it. They say things like, I'd rather be partying in hell with all my friends than bored playing a harp in heaven with all those hypocrites. And again, the main reason that people have such a hard time dealing with the reality of hell is because they can't reconcile it with, a con with the concept of a loving God. They reason that if God does exist, and if he is a God of love, then hell cannot exist because a loving God would never create a place like hell, much less send people there forever. We don't have time to get into all the details. We have done a whole series on this. So you can check it out. But let me just say this. This is more to the point. Most people who reject the reality of hell do so because, listen, they want to go on living in rebellion against God's laws and commandments. We just talked about that. Their logic goes something like this. If hell doesn't exist, then I got nothing to worry about. I can keep on living any way I want, sleeping around, drinking, partying, stealing, cheating, whatever they're doing. And I don't have to worry about consequences because hell isn't real. You know, Paul the Apostle in Romans 1.18 said, he talked about those who suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously. The Greek word is to push it down out of their consciousness. Because God has written his laws in their hearts, Paul would go on to teach. They know right from wrong innately because God has programmed them with the knowledge of right and wrong. But they suppress it. Because if you believe in God's righteous standard, his laws, and you violate them, it brings conviction. People don't want to deal with conviction. They want to sin with impunity. Get rid of, how do you get rid of conviction? Get rid of God. So now we have a, a big rise of neo-atheism in the country, especially among young people. Look, let me just say this. People can joke about hell. They can ignore it or dismiss it or try to get around it by saying it isn't really hot or it isn't forever or it's a big party time. But none of that matters. The only thing that matters is what God has to say about hell. Only thing that matters. I've said this before. Let me say it again. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. In fact, he talked about it more than he talked about heaven or even love. Why? Why did he talk about hell so much? Because he didn't want anyone to go there. Again, as a, I just pointed out a survey I read a few years ago. says that a majority of Americans believe in the reality of heaven, but only a small percentage believe that hell is a real place. Now look, when skeptics ask you if you believe in the reality of hell, because they want to brand you as a fool. Only a fool believes in hell. So they'll try to get you on that. The skeptic asks you if you believe in the reality of hell, of course you tell them yes. When they ask you why, you just simply say, well, I believe in hell because Jesus believed in hell. That should shut the conversation down. In fact, you can point them to Matthew 25, verse 46, where Jesus talked about heaven and hell in the same sentence and said they were both eternal. Look, I've been to many funerals in my life. If you're in ministry, you go to a lot of funerals. I've been to a good number of funerals where I knew the person who died wasn't a believer. I knew it. 
And maybe they died a hard death due to cancer, a lot of suffering. And so you typically will hear family and friends say things like, well, George is in a better place. He's no longer suffering. He's at rest now. But guys, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's mere wishful thinking rather than biblical truth. The Bible tells us what happens to those who refuse to repent for their sins and receive Jesus as their Savior. I'll read it. You don't have to turn. You know it. Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. Those that get cast into the lake of fire will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. So again, the Bible tells us that not only is hell real, it's eternal. I mean, no one taught the sobering truth of the, reality, of the eternality of hell more clearly than did the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke of hell as a place of eternal fire, Matthew 18, verse 8, and 25, verse 41. A place where the fire is never quenched, Mark 9, 48, and many other places. And again, in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus clearly taught that the torment of the lost in hell will last as long as the blessedness of the redeemed in heaven, eternally. Now, I know that some of you here might still be thinking to yourself, but I, I, just, I still can't get my mind around how a God of love could send, a, send people to a place like hell. Turn to Romans 2. And actually, we'll be dealing with this section, starting to deal with it this Wednesday in our study in Romans. But look at Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Now, Paul is talking to unbelievers. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed. Verse 8, he will pour out his anger and wrath on those, listen, who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. These are the folks that go to hell. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 18, here's what God said, pleading with people. He said, turn, please turn from your sins. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. Please turn, repent. Come to me, and I'll forgive you. This is the heart of our God, who's patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance. You know, I came across this some time ago. I've kept it because I like it. It goes like this. Oh, you preachers make me sick. A fellow said to a witnessing Christian on the train one day. The Christian assured him he was not a preacher. I don't care what you are. You Christians are always talking about a man going to hell because Adam sinned. No, the Christian said. You need not go to hell because Adam sinned. You will go to hell because you refuse the remedy provided for Adam's sin. Don't keep complaining about something that has absolutely been taken care of. If you go to hell, you will go over the broken body of Jesus Christ who died to keep you out of hell. 
end quote. Look, nobody goes to hell by chance. There are some people that embrace a certain theology that teaches that in eternity past, God just capriciously said, well, you folks, you're going to go to heaven and the rest of you, you're going to be cast into hell. Chance. The Bible says that no one ever goes to hell by chance. They go to hell by choice. And I know at this point someone would say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody would choose to go to hell. Maybe not directly, although we're living in pretty strange times. There are people today that are vocal about being Satanists. And they laugh and brag about going to hell. They want to go to hell, they say. But I think most people would not say that they're intentionally choosing to go to hell. But as Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're what? Against me. I know a lot of folks will say, you know what? I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe in Jesus, heaven, hell. I'm neutral. But I got news for you. You can't be neutral. Because God is demanding you make a choice. And if you don't choose Jesus as your Savior, by default, you're going to be cast into hell with the devil. Remember, guys, the Bible teaches that sin is a violation of God's laws, which makes all sinners criminals in the eyes of God. Not good people, criminals. Those crimes must be paid for, which is why Jesus died on the cross for us. He died to pay our debt. But those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whose blood alone can pay their debt, well, they're going to spend eternity in hell paying for their own crimes against God. However, that doesn't have to be. Because God sent his son into the world to die in our place, the innocent dying for the guilty, which allowed God, listen now, to offer fallen man a pardon. A pardon. We were guilty sinners. The case was over in the Garden of Eden when man blew it. Adam and Eve for all of us. God declared the human race guilty. But God offered sinners a pardon. But if a pardon is going to be a benefit to a condemned criminal, it has to be accepted. It has to be received. True story. Back in 1830, a man named George Wilson was convicted of robbing the United States mail and was sentenced to be hanged. Then President Andrew Jackson, he issued Wilson a pardon. But Wilson refused it. That threw the legal system into chaos. Nobody had ever refused a pardon before. There was no legal precedence for this thing. Well, now what do we do? Do we force him? Or, or what do we do now? Not knowing what to do, the matter went all the way to the Supreme Court, where Justice, Chief Justice Marshall concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. He said, and I'm quoting him, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. You know, the Apostle John said this of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. 
And not only for our sins, all sin, Gentiles, Jews, all people that live or have ever been born on the face of the earth. God has issued a pardon. Look, when Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, he was saying that the work of redemption had been completed. Sin had been paid for. And at that very moment, God issued a pardon. But you have to understand something. Since God is outside of time, he sees things from eternity's perspective. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, God knew, of course, Christ was going to die. And the mind of God had already taken place. But now 2,000 years ago, when Jesus actually hung on that cross and did die for sins, it ratified that idea. And God made this pardon retroactive to the beginning of creation, reaching into the Garden of Eden. God issued a pardon to every condemned sinner that would ever be born into this fallen world. A pardon is a gift. That's what the word grace means. Charis, a gift. A gift that is received by faith, not a reward that must be earned through works. You know these. Let me read them to you quickly. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. Well, Paul picks up on that. I'm sorry, it was Paul who wrote that. But he also said in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 For God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this your salvation is not yours it didn't come from you or from me you can't take credit for god's gift it's a gift from god salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it right so again to recap man mankind has been declared guilty and condemned by god the righteous judge of all the earth sentenced to spend eternity in hell the case is over the verdict has been rendered Yet God in his mercy, through his son Jesus Christ, is offering the human race a pardon. A pardon that was bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Receive God's pardon, you'll be forgiven and have an eternity you can't even begin to imagine. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. But remember when it comes to a pardon. It will only benefit you if you receive it by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. Don't put off making a decision to receive Jesus as your Savior to another day. That day may never come. That's why the Bible says our life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. You're alive today. Tomorrow you might not be. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice right now, don't harden your heart. And yet this is where Satan's next favorite lie comes into play. Lie number five, it's too late for you. The devil has told many people that they're too old to become a born-again Christian, that they're too old to change and start living a new life for God. That is a bold-faced lie, and he knows it. It's only too late for you to accept Jesus as your Savior and become a born-again Christian when you're dead. Until you're dead, you still have time. Only time is too late is when you breathe your last. You've heard of deathbed conversions, right? Where somebody on their deathbed... Somebody witnesses to them and they receive Jesus and hooray. I've heard people over the years say that they don't believe deathbed conversions are legitimate. They're real. They don't believe that. 
Why? We could, they say something like it's impossible for a person to get saved on their deathbed. At that point, it's just a hypocritical attempt to escape the consequences of their life of sin and debauchery. In other words, they're just trying to snow God. They're trying to, God, I know I've lived a horrible, sinful life, but you know what? Uh, I really, uh, I really want to have you forgive me. I, I, I confess that, uh, that I lived a terrible life. And critics say, come on. They're not sincere. They're only saying those things to, you know, maybe try to fool God into letting them uh, go to heaven. They're not really sorry for the way they lived their life. Now listen, with, with some people, maybe many people, that is probably true. But God knows the heart. And God knows if their profession of faith is truly heartfelt or empty hypocrisy. God knows. But I know this, that's not the case for every sinner about to die, that they're only being a hypocrite. How do I know that? Because God has included in his word a deathbed conversion story of sorts to give everyone else hope that it's never too late to receive Jesus as your Savior as long as you're still breathing. Quickly, turn to Luke 23 and we'll close. Now, you know, Jesus, of course, was crucified between two thieves. And initially, both of these thieves mocked him. You know, if you're really Messiah, Son of God, come down off the cross and take us with you. So initially, both of these men were mocking Jesus. Then all of a sudden, one of them had a change of heart. Verse 39, Luke 23. Then one of the criminals who... Uh, who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? You, you know, we, we are dying for our crimes. He said, verse 41, We are in, indeed justly being executed for our crimes, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is probably the simplest expression of faith in all the Bible that saved a man. He acknowledged, I'm a sinner. I deserve to be here. You're sinless. You're going to rise from the dead because remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he called him Lord, your God. So that very simple profession of faith, I'm a sinner, you're God, you're the Savior, you're Lord, you're going to die and rise again. It's all he needed. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You don't need to be a theologian to receive Christ. You don't need to take an eight-week course in theology, what the theologian calls soteriology, what it means to be saved. If your heart is sincere, you just cry out to Jesus, right? And it's never too late. I'll end with a true story. I know it's a true story because this man was the father of one of my pastors. Going back a few years, I had a pastor in the church who grew up in a home where he was the youngest of four and three others above him were, were, were girls, sisters. He, he was always mothered by these girls, controlled by these women. Well, it didn't get any better when he became an adult. He got saved. They didn't. And one day his dad gets very ill. 
he wants to go and talk to him one last time about, he's on his deathbed, wanted to talk to him one last time about Jesus Christ. He had witnessed to him in the past, but his father was not open. But he knew if he went there and his sisters were there, they would have shut him down. He wouldn't be able to say anything. She said, I'm going to go over to the hospital right now. Could you pray with me? I said, sure. And we prayed that God would go before him, make the way straight, and that he'd have some private time with his father to share the gospel. Well, sure enough, he gets there, and there's nobody in the room. He shares the gospel with his dad one last time, and then asks him, Dad, would you like to pray to receive Jesus as your Savior? And lo and behold, by the grace of God, he said, yes, I would. So he leads his dad in the sinner, sinner's prayer. You know, repeat after me, this and that, you know. Now, I kid you not, the next thing I'm about to say is absolutely true. His father no sooner said, amen, he flatlined. The monitor went off, people are running in, he was gone. That's cutting it pretty close, folks. <laughs> I got to tell you. He was seconds away from death. He opened his heart to Christ, received him as a Savior, and I believe we'll see him in heaven someday. It's never too late until you breathe your last breath to receive Jesus Christ. And I say that not just to you folks in this room. I know most of you are saved. But how about your loved ones that you're so burdened for because no matter how many times you share the God, they shut you down. I don't want to hear it. Keep praying. God's working. And at one point, it may come to a pivotal moment where, lo and behold, you ask them, do you want to pray to receive Jesus? And they might go ahead and say yes. Now, God knows their heart. God knows if they're sincere or not. But there's no reason for us to think that at that moment, they're not being sincere. They got no, Why lie at that point? And so take heart, keep praying, and keep trusting God is working on your loved ones. And eventually they will be saved. Amen? Amen? All right, we'll pick it up next week, God willing. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you that at one time we were living in a world of lies and we had, um, we had been born into the darkness. It was inside of us, all around us. Satan's lies were everywhere. and We bought into many of them at one point. But thank you, Lord, that you came and you began to work in our hearts and you began to move us towards reading your word. And we did. And we got saved, so many of us, Lord. And now we have the light of your truth. We thank you that, Lord, now as we have the truth, by your grace, we want to give that truth to others in a kind, caring, and respectful way. A servant of the Lord must never fight or quarrel with somebody who is lost, but in humility and all uh, share the truth in love that lord you would free them from the captivity of satan break the chain smash the prison and set the captives free we thank you we ask you to keep blessing these these uh, this series we ask it all in jesus name amen